This episode of Fermented Adventure the Podcast features John Kalchik and Petra Mancina. It was recorded at Original 13 Cider Works in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Please take a moment to subscribe to be notified when the most recent episode has been uploaded. Feel free to reach out to Original 13 Cider Works and let them know what you thought about the podcast. Cheers! <laughs> Hello ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, F.A. Nation, let's meet our guests. We're here at Original 13 Cider Works. He's John Kocek. She's Petra Mancina. I'm Rich Shane. Dawn Ranieri's here. And we're going to talk cider and a little bit of mead today. Absolutely. John and Petra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Uh, I, like, so, so we talked a little bit before the podcast. This has been two years in the making, trying to get together. We met the first time at Pour the Core in Philly or the Bucks County Brew Fest. We kind, they all kind of run together, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since we've been doing beer shows. But yes, it's been a rough year. But uh, yeah, we finally got this to make, make something happen here. So glad to have you. Well, we're glad to be here. So original 13 Cider Works. How did all this get started? Um, so, uh, well, this starts back with me uh, and my family. So, uh, Original 13 Cider Works produces Sir Charles Hard Cider. So, most of your viewers who are not familiar with the tap room will probably know our product line as Sir Charles. Uh, Sir Charles was my grandfather. Uh, and it was Charles Steckel. He, uh, back in his youth, he was uh, an orphan. Um, and he was... Uh, Back in those days, it was very common for the orphanages to send young boys out to work farms, and he worked apple farms, and he got into making cider uh, when I was in my youth and got into homebrewing, like many people. Um, that led to a conversation with him where he was like, I used to make hard cider. Um, and I remember clearly going, what's hard cider? I'd never heard of it before. Um, and eventually that led to you know, me pursuing my business degree and going, you know, I really wanted to start a business myself. And I said, looking at Philadelphia at the time, there was no hard cideries here. And I said, wow, I think this would be a great opportunity to bring an amazing product to, to Philadelphia. So we started the company in 2013 um, and it took us until 2017 to start a tasting room at our location here in uh, Old Kensington. Tons of questions are going through my, my head now, but the connection with your grandfather mm-hmm. and and Sir Charles and all that. What were some of the conversations? I mean, besides him in introducing cider to you, you're paying homage. I mean, you're really honoring his legacy when you do that. Yeah. What what did did he help you with recipes? Did he help you with 
understanding how to make cider? And what was that like for you? Uh, so he did. He actually found his old journal from the 60s. So this was before homebrewing was even legal. Uh, so I think it was Jimmy Carter who made homebrewing legal. So what he was doing it was technically not illegal. It was still illegal back in his day. Um, but he would brew it in his basement. He had a, a 50-gallon drum. He would fill it up with apple juice every year from a local orchard that he worked with. And it became sort of a family tradition that on Christmas Day, the family would go, the adults, would go down in the basement and throw back some, some hard cider and get schnuckered. And, um, and he would deliver uh, gallon jugs. He would save up old milk jugs and leave them on his neighbor's doorstep as Christmas presents for his neighbors. And that's how it started. And when I kind of got interested into it, he had already kind of stopped doing it. He was in his 70s by then. Um, but he had he had kept logs. And they weren't exactly complete. <laughs> so we kind of worked with him as best we could to kind of recreate his formula. Um, and we actually produce it today as our, our old scrumpy. And we pay direct homage to him by actually on the label. And Old Scrumpy gets its name from... It's an old British term. It basically means farmhouse cider. Um, it's not a term that many Americans understand. So the ciders that we produce under the Sir Charles banner today are what we would call an American-style cider. They're more uh, fruit-forward, slightly sweeter. You know, everything we do is more like semi-dry, semi-sweets, um, except for our Atacama line, which are pure dries. But Granddad was more interested in... Uh, Granddad liked it strong. Let's put it that way. Uh, the scrumpy. So a much higher ABV and really, like you said, schnookered. Did you use that word? Yeah. So uh, yeah, he would. Uh, his cider came in around fourteen percent the first time we recreated the recipe, um, and we've actually managed to kick it up even higher uh, with our Irish scrumpy, which comes in at around fifteen and a half. Uh, but it was it was so alcoholic that sometimes after they got about halfway through the barrel, if it was cold enough on Christmas, they would throw the barrel out in the snow freeze it, and then pour off the liquid as Applejack. So basically, freeze distillation. So it, it was potent. It was very potent. When is that? When are you going to do that? We do it every year. So you, so you put the barrel outside and let it freeze? Oh, no. God, no that would be illegal. Okay, I, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> Uh, is the TTB listening? Um, uh, no, I mean we. I think that sounds like like such a fun ritual to do. I mean, obviously you have to make sure it's cold enough to do it, if, but that sounds like a lot of fun. If you want to buy a bottle of Scrumpy and throw it in, in the freezer, freezer? Uh, take the cap off first so it doesn't explode, and see what happens. <laughs> I love the progression and the way you really include the family and your just your heritage and and, and the history of, of what you're doing. Where does the name Original 13 come into play? Okay, so Original 13 is an homage to Philadelphia. Obviously, Philadelphia being the home of independence, you know, uh, it was one of the original 13 colonies where uh, we actually, in our tasting room, we have all the original 13 state flags. Pennsylvania comes in at number three. Um, we're very upset that Delaware and New Jersey beat us in that regard. But, <laughs> uh, but it was sort of an idea, like, you, there's a lot of breweries that have, you know, independence brewing companies. They hark back to this you know, image, and I don't know, I stuck on Original 13 just because it sounded different, I don't know, but uh, I wanted something that tied into the, the history of the city. I wonder, because of the time frame that you said, you started, you know, really focusing on ciders about 2013, right? Correct, yeah. And it took you to about 2017 to get to the location where you are now. Correct. Where does that put you in terms of cideries throughout Pennsylvania? Because 
you're probably using your point, one of the originals. We are, we were the first to open in the city limits. Okay. So we were the original here in Philadelphia. I don't know. I, there were definitely cideries here. I mean, I know like Jack's Hard Cidery, Hauser Estates, uh, Arsenal was definitely open way before us. So there's definitely, you know, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania has a long history of cider, especially, you know, our proximity to Jersey. Um, but, you know, after Prohibition, the cideries all died out. Right. Um, and as far as I know, I, I have tried to do some research through the city records, but I've never come up with a confirmation. If there's anybody on your podcast that can confirm this, uh, as far as I understand, since Prohibition, there wasn't an actual cidery inside the city limits of Philadelphia until us. So you are potentially, even in cidery world, in the cidery world, you're part of the original 13. We are the original, we're the original 13. So at least in Philadelphia. <laughs> at least in Philadelphia. Well, there aren't 13 cideries yet in Philadelphia either. But that's growing. And I think to that point and you being here and kind of paving the way for other cideries to come behind you, you've really established yourself as a, a quality cidery. I'm sure there's that camaraderie with, with the cider industry here. But how did you really get a sense or how did you – you're talking about you created cider and you did that with your grandfather using some of the old formulas. But how did you get it all dialed in now to what you're producing on a larger scale? And what was the process like for you to do that? Sure. Job? So for me, um, my journey took me to England. Um, I studied under the uh, International Cider and Perry Academy um, by name, uh, under a gentleman named Pete Mitchell, who is in the cider community, considered one of the, the, the godfathers, if you will, of the modern cider revolution. He, anybody who's in cider knows Pete Mitchell. Um, he has been somebody who's... Not the Top Gun Pete Mitchell? No. no okay. No. no. Um, he's a very, very cool dude. And if anybody's interested in cider, he offers courses in England, here in the United States, every year. Even if you're just somebody who's just really into cider, you're not even thinking about doing this commercially, sign up for his classes. He is a wealth of knowledge. Um, but I went to England. I toured around Wales and Ireland. Um, kind of gotten, you know sort of an old-school history of the cider culture. Um, so you really immersed yourself. I mean, you, you decided you're, you're going to really immerse yourself and learn not only history, yep. but other regions and other countries where they're making cider. Well, England is where, you know, if you look at England, right. um, you, know, you know, America, I think right now, 3 to 4% of all alcohol consumed is cider. I think in England, it's something like 30 to 40%. Um, that is a nation that is driven by cider. And, you know, I mean, to the point when the colonists came here, there was there was a lot of cider being consumed. John Adams referenced that in a letter to his wife, Abigail, about the quality of cider and, and how much cider was consumed even here in Philadelphia. Yeah. So you have to understand, they brought that with them. Yeah. I mean, on my business card, there's a quote from Ben Franklin who said, you know, it is bad to eat apples. They should all be turned to cider because in those days they actually had this weird concept that apples, fresh apples were bad for you. That it was better to turn them into alcohol. So I'm that way with corn <laughs> and uh, potatoes, and let's stop eating the raw stuff. Let's right. turn it into some sort Everything of spirit. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you really had that experience going over to England, going to Ireland. What what did you take out of that education? What did you really take out of that experience that really influences what you're doing today? So I mean, that was 2010, 2011, and. Uh, coming back to America, the, the key thing that I drove was that English ciders were very dry. Um, they, at least where I was, which was Western England, 
and so that you, you have to make some context here. Everybody seems to think England is like one homogenous group. It's not. Uh, Western England is very much uh, a rural countryside, and just like we in Pennsylvania have our like central PA, you know, rural cideries, um, they took a much more um, agricultural approach. So it was a lot of wild fermentations. Uh, a lot of heirloom apples. So it wasn't like the Strongbows and the Magners and the Aspals, which were, you know, very big cider companies that were well-established in England. But what I came back to America uh, after, you know, experiencing Southern England was that the American taste palette is different. It's sweeter, wouldn't you say? It is definitely right? sweeter. Yeah. But there was also a driving force in American cider drinkers that was saying, what we have now is too sweet. It's not. It's not craft. It's all mass produced uh, because this was just around the time that Angry Orchard was really coming onto the market. Um, and so I was looking to kind of say, all right, we need a bridge. We need a bridge between the woodchucks and the Angry Orchards and the Magnus of the world for American cider drinkers and the sort of farmhouse heirloom apples. Uh, we need that bridge to take people from one to the next. That's a fascinating way that you're taking this because I have a question. As as the cider industry has evolved, mm-hmm. where do you find the conversations are with the consumer about cider today mm-hmm. versus where they were four or five years ago, even going back 10 years ago when you were doing more of that education understanding process? Sure. Where do you think we are in America now or what do you see, and for even for you, Petra? I mean, as you're as you're introducing yourself to the customer, what what's the response? And is there still that education part about dry ciders and sweet ciders and people's opinions about what they like or what they haven't had yet? I, you know, honestly, I think this is a great question for Petra because she is also one of our bartenders and she's mm-hmm. with the public all the time. Um, personally, I would feel that. Working in a cider bar, obviously a lot more people that come in here know about cider, but in general, uh, the craft beer, craft spirits, and craft cider revolution over the past, like, five years especially has the public a lot more knowledgeable than they were in the past. Um, I get a lot less general questions and a lot more technical questions from guests now. Um, so I would say most people are very familiar with, like, with what cider is. They're familiar that it's made out of apples. Uh, they know what tastes to expect, um, but now it's more getting into like the nitty gritty with what they expect or what they're curious about or what they haven't learned yet. So some of those technical questions are more educating the consumer even further besides walking in and saying, well, what's cider? I mean, what is that? Is that yeah. beer or right? Or what are the questions you may, may have gotten yeah. before? Like I would say about seven years ago, questions I would get are, what is cider? Like, what is that made out of? Now, um, it's more along the lines of, like, how long do you ferment? What kind of apples do you use? What varieties? Like, what are your seasonals? So it's a lot more, we're familiar with what cider's supposed to be. How do you guys operate? I think that's exciting. I mean, don't you feel like you're now, you're having grown up, I mean, grown up conversations about cider, right? But there is a process that you have to go through, especially being early on in the cider, you know, industry, in the cider scene, where you have to educate the consumer. I can tell you, I mean, this area, Punch Buggies across the street, New Liberty Distilleries behind you. 
And I'm sure you were all saying to each other, hey, have you been here? Hey, have you been here? Now, people understand what the distillery is for the most mm-hmm. part. People understand what a brewery is. But somebody says, oh, Original 13, that's a cidery. There's still maybe a conversation. Oh, mm-hmm. well, what do they have? What do they make? Sure. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to, at this point, what you're saying is, hey, you're having really fun conversations. Not that the other ones are fun where you're introducing and you're, you're somebody that's never had cider before. Now you introduce them to the whole different world. Um, and I, I think as you were talking about, John, the idea of, you know, the way, you know, where you're, where you're going to London or you're going to Wales or you're going to Ireland where there's more of a palate for dry ciders, do you feel – two questions I had in mind. Number one, do you think the American cider market now is impacting the European cider market in any way? Oh, absolutely. Where they may be getting more on the on a sweeter or more flavorful or more. Um, I know we were in England last year. I don't remember seeing. I think maybe we had like a strawberry apple cider. Mm-hmm. I don't see them doing a lot of. Um, I, I haven't seen them doing a lot of um, other fruit incorporated in their ciders. When I was in England, if you went up to somebody and said, "Oh, have you had a blueberry cider?" They would have just. Oh my God! You, you put another fruit in your cider. yeah. They're still mad about the revolution, and they're probably thinking that's just another way to dig at them or yeah, something, you right? Put ice <laughs> in your tea. What's wrong with you? Um, you know, here's the thing: is you know, I came back from England with a lot of experience and a lot of great insight into what England has done, but America has never been ever, whether it's just politically or in the craft beer or cider or what whiskey space. We are innovators. If you tell us, oh, you can't put another fruit in that, we're going to put another fruit in that. Oh, you can't put chocolate and uh, habanero in your cider? Oh, I'll put chocolate and habanero in my cider. You know, they are... Are we having that one yeah. today? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you know, you know, if you go to, like, if you say, I'm drinking a Spanish cider, there's a very distinct quality of Spanish cider. It's a slightly vinegar taste. It, but if and say, is there a certain name for that? No, I don't... Okay, I just I've never heard of one that might not like your viewers. I, I didn't know if the, the varietal or the, the kind of cider that would be might yeah. have a specific kind of name. It's just, you know, for me, it's Basque or Spanish cider. Okay. Um, but, you know, in America, if you said what defines an American cider today, I would say you have a very hard time defining it because you can get things like us that have, you know, very other fruit forwards, but you can go to somebody like um, Hale and True or Big Hill or you go out to the West Coast with like Reverend Nat, who. You know, they don't, maybe they don't play those types of things. Maybe they're more traditional. There is such a wide variety now in the American marketplace because Americans are willing to say, you know what? That's what they used to do back in the old world. We're not going to do that. We're going to try something different over here. And that's been the same with beer. I mean, if you look at how craft beer in America has evolved, I mean, we all started with German German beers. Oh, Loggers, Pilsners, I mean... The Germans know everything about beer. Right. But you know what? Then we sat down and said, you know what? Let's do it ourselves. And I think that's what makes American craft, whatever that beverage tends to be, whether it's you know cider or whiskey or beer, whatever, that what makes America awesome. I, I love the space. I mean, I love this part where we are in the cider world because I, I would imagine right now there's a whole bunch of innovation you mentioned um, wild ferment. Yep. Is that something that you've done in any way right now or looking to do? I wouldn't 
dare try a wild ferment in the middle of Philadelphia. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're in Old Kensington. Yeah. That would be scary. Um, you know, we use the term uh, urban cider to describe what we are. Okay. Um, you know, you, most people, you know, again, when they vision a cidery or a winery even, you think, oh, it's somewhere in the country, there's a, you know, a bunch of vineyards or, or apple orchards out back, that's where they're getting their fruit from. There's nothing out back. There's an apartment building. <laughs> I mean, we work with local farmers and we import fresh juice to our location here in Philadelphia where we brew and, and make it into our products. Um, but, you know, in order to wild ferment, you need to have wild yeast, and wild yeast grows on the trees. There ain't any trees in Philly, really. I mean, <laughs> not not orchard, not apple trees. No, I mean, or... any wild any wild yeast that would be in the air here would be like bakery yeast or brewer's yeast, most likely, and it probably wouldn't produce something you'd want to drink. So for us, we we, we pitch our own yeast. Now going back to because you make your point, you're sourcing your your juice, you're sourcing your apples at the beginning of time, being the first cidery in Philadelphia, what was that like for you to start to get that going? I mean, you already had that experience of understanding what you're going to need, sure. but now you're going out. I mean, yes, there were a couple of other, cidery, other cideries, so it's yeah. not like you're blazing a trail nobody had done, but this was probably a little bit more new for them too, right? Yeah, I mean, Pennsylvania is the fourth largest apple producing state in America, uh, followed number three by New York, which is not that far away. Um, so we have access to apples. So, you know, if you're going to start an urban cidery, um, somewhere near Pennsylvania, York makes the most sense because you have access to a wide variety of apples, not just dessert fruit, but heirloom apples and cider fruit. And we're seeing more and more farmers planting cider fruit for sale. So it makes sense to be where we are. Um, like it would be much harder for me like, to imagine, and again, like starting a cidery in Arizona, Okay, where are you going to go to get an apple? It's just not a fruit that's, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see a lot of apple trees growing in Arizona. But for us... I mean, we'll get a lot of comments now. About, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, I have not researched cideries in Arizona, but maybe. as you get up to the northern yeah. parts of it, maybe there are some cideries up there. Well, I mean, if you look at the top three apple producing states, it's Seattle, Michigan, New York, and number four is Pennsylvania. So there's a band of temperature. That is clearly ideal for Right. Apples. There's a climate that's exactly right. And you have to understand, it's not just, hey, I'm just going to grow any old apple. Right. You need apples that are really produced for cider making, too. Um, yes. I mean, for, for certain blends, if you're going the heirloom route, absolutely. Um, again, my mentor, Pete Mitchell, would have said, you can make great cider out of any apple. Okay. You know, it more comes down to the blend, the taste profile. Um, it comes down to you know, your fermentation methods. Um, and it certainly comes down to process. And uh, I should give a, a shout out to my brewer, who is the mastermind behind all our ciders, Clint Holmes, who is a 20-year veteran in the wine and cider industry. And he is the one who is actually the person handcrafting all our ciders. I kind of give him an idea, he runs with it. And sometimes he'll come back and say, like, this doesn't work, and sometimes he will. But he is somebody who is a master at turning literally any kind of juice into an amazing product. Talk about this space we're in. How did you select this part of Philadelphia? And, or did it select you in terms of opening? I mean, because what's going on here mm-hmm. is really the continuation of the, 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 the outward expansion yeah. of, you know, Fishtown, Northern Liberties to you've got plenty of construction going on right now. Yep. When you opened up, not so much, right? 
Uh, it, was a, it was a neighborhood in change. I mean, this is a neighborhood that's rapidly, you know, gentrifying and changing in a lot of ways. Um, the reason for me, I mean, you looked at uh, 20 different properties around the city. Um, when you're in the brewing industry, you need an industrial space. Um, you know, we have two 2,500-gallon fermenters, which are our primary fermenters. Um, that's a lot of weight. Um, you can't put that on a wooden floor. Um, you can't, you know, you need solid concrete underneath those tanks. And so Old Kensington, specifically the American Street Corridor, was one of the, back in the day, the industrial hearts of Philadelphia. In fact, uh, prior to the construction in this past year, there used to be railroad tracks that came right down the center of the road, which was the terminus of the Reading Railroad. So this building was originally um, a maintenance shed for the trains. So the floors were designed to hold the weight of a locomotive. So it can clearly hold the, you know, the, the weight of my two fermenters. So we kind of chose it because of, A, the history, what was happening in the neighborhood. But again, you know, it's 20-foot ceilings, it's solid floors, it has everything you want, um, specifically open the space, which is so important when you're trying to be a brewer. What was it like starting to make your cider at the beginning? Um, what were those like aha moments for you where you realized you were on to something? Um, you know, it's funny. So if I, my clearest remembrance was probably 2014 when we first went to pour the court, the original pour the course, 2015, it's one of those two years. And we had literally two flavors of Sir Charles. It was dry and slightly less dry. <laughs> I mean, like we didn't even have any flavors really. And we were sitting at the tent and one of the things I would watch was nobody would pour it on the ground. You know, so many times you go to a beer show and you get that, that drink and you're like, oh God, and you just see people pour it on the ground. And when I noticed that, you know, customer after customer after customer would show up and then be like, oh yeah, this is pretty good. I was like, all right, we're heading down the right path. We've got something that clearly people want. That was kind of my aha. That's a great focus group project. (laughs) I mean, if you think about wanting to offer maybe a different flavor or something totally, you can watch people. Because I think in a lot of cases with those festivals, you're just you're just moving. You know, somebody hands you the put, puts the glass in your yeah. face and says, ah, "Here, you know." Yeah, and nobody will. You know, if you if you confront somebody and go, "Oh, do you like that?" They're, of course, they don't want to insult you. They're going to say, "Oh, yeah, I love it." And then right. five minutes later, they're like, "No, in the trash can." Um, but if you watch them and they're like, "Oh, yeah," and they're still drinking it as they're in the, going into the next line for that next drink, you know, that's a great compliment. Yeah. That's so that that's compliment. that's like that's that's that registers with you to say. They, they, they like me. They really like me. Yes. You know, that you finish the glass. Your own Sally Field <laughs> moment. <laughs> yeah. How, so when you started in this space, what was the idea of incorporating food? Was that in your mind at the time or has that come a little bit later now? Um, it did. Um, so one of the other places that I traveled to was Seattle. Uh, and one of the cideries that I you know, was introduced to out in Seattle was uh, Capital Cider Works. Uh, amazing. Cidery. Um, it's actually uh, a dedicated cidery uh, in the sense that all they serve is cider food. And I mean, I think it was like 40 taps of cider because um, Washington has just cideries everywhere. Um, but what I found amazing was their, the food offerings were all kind of gluten free, but not in the sense where it was something that was something was substituted out of the dish to make it gluten free. Okay. You know, it was 
we're going to cook something that just happens to be gluten-free. And I said, that's amazing, because everything was gluten-free, but it all tasted good. Whereas everything I had tried before, like gluten-free buns, gluten-free bread, and gluten-free pizza, didn't taste right. Like, it was like, yeah, it's gluten-free, but it doesn't taste good. But cider being gluten-free, and something that a lot of people who are celiac, you know, are attracted to, it made sense to offer a food source that complemented your beverage, which means we decided to offer a food and a menu that was very much in tune with our product being primarily gluten-free. We also get a lot of vegetarians. We have uh, no uh, gelatin in our process, so there's no animal byproducts. So it's gluten-free and vegetarian by design. Like, we didn't take anything out of this. That's just how nature makes cider. And so we said, all right, let's create a kitchen and a menu that does the same thing. And today we still have, like, our Brussels sprouts, which, um, you know, if you're not into Brussels sprouts, who who's not into Brussels sprouts? <laughs> but I mean, it's been one of the items that's been on your menu since day one, and it's still one of our top sellers. But it's you know, if you think about it, they're they're roasted Brussels sprouts that people love because they just happen to be gluten free by design. You know, see, I, this is why I love doing the podcast because we've been in here a few times. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I just missed it in the whole conversation. I didn't know your food menu was gluten-free. Well, I mean, we do have non-gluten. But you have, so, all right, so you... It's gluten-forward. Gluten-forward. But there are gluten-free choices. Okay. Okay, But what you're telling me is you saw somebody else doing something. Yes. And that resonated with you to bring that to this area. And it really really encompasses the idea of what is cider gluten-free. Why do people gravitate towards that maybe versus beer or other beverages? Because this is something they can drink in that menu or in that dietary you know area that they can feel comfortable and know they can drink. Absolutely. I mean, you have to, you know, if you're going to open any type of alcohol production, whether it's whiskey or beer or cider, you have to understand your clients. And cider, if you look at all the research, all the demographics, 70% of cider drinkers are predominantly women. Um, the bulk of them have some interest in gluten-free. So you can't ignore that. You can't just say, well, you know, I want to create whatever. I mean, in fact, um, there was, uh, oh, what was that cider? I think it was Miller Coors trying to put out. It was like, had like the hammer and the iron. It was like some kind of like ginger cider. I can't remember what it was called, but they literally tried to design it around attracting men. And it didn't work. Okay. Because it was like, all right, that's just... Not with this, you can't force something down people's throats. Um, God, it was like anvil and something, hammer and anvil or something. I can't remember now. No idea. I'm I'm just starting to. <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly starting to picture the the flag yeah. from the Soviet Union right now. <laughs> it was hammer and sickle, and it was yeah, a big red. Like it was that. a big red label. I don't know. Now that, that's an interesting question. So you talk about right, seventy percent of cider drinkers are women. But obviously, when when, pe- when when couples are coming into your establishment, I mean, are you thinking through that maybe there are some ciders or do you see ciders that maybe, you know, uh, men would drink? And I, I, obviously, in 2021, we can't get too gender specific because um, I don't want to leave anybody out. But the idea is that are you seeing – are there ciders now that you see maybe different – there are different gravitations towards? So I absolutely love our – social media accounts and all of the statistics that they give us um, because our cidery and our tasting rooms, Instagram, are very split. 
uh, between gender identification, we have very equal followers that's basically split down the middle, whether you identify as a woman or as a uh, male, between who enjoys our cider. Uh, because we make our bone dry, it's very pleasing towards someone that's not looking for something that's particularly sweet or something that's, or might be considered feminine or girly. Um, we have a very, very huge male following in our tasting room, but they just love the cider. They love the product. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I, Dawn and I have never really talked about whether cider consumption was more gender specific. Mm-hmm. From that standpoint, I, we've had conversations of people that have never had cider or are not familiar with cider. But not necessarily, you know, I think it's all about your taste. You know, it's like saying, do you prefer a dry white wine versus a sweet white wine? A fruity white wine versus a... Yeah. Boy, I think that's more along the lines that I would characterize. And I've never really heard that really introduced that way. Yeah, so, you know, when I looked at forming a business plan, I, I got my MBA from Drexel and I started almost immediately forming, the, you know, the, the framework, which would become Original 13. And I did a lot of market research and you know uh, a lot of companies like say you know uh, angry orchard and all those they have already done the market research and you know it's undeniable so it's undeniable so like beer is heavily driven towards men i mean if you look at the advertising again it's shifted in the 2020s for good reasons but if you go back in time to the 80s and 90s and you look at what budweiser was putting on posters and things it was clearly male dominated because even today, yes, more women drink beer. That's great. And they're entering the craft market. Most of it's still guys. But with cider, it's the reverse. And you can't just sit there and you can't ignore it. I'm not saying you have to, like, build everything towards that. You can't ignore it. You have to be aware of who your customers are and what they want. You know, that's that's a good business plan for anyone. That's, I, to me, this is... I, 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 I... This is the fascinating stuff, and especially how about about how it affects your business and how you think about moving forward. How has COVID affected for you guys? How has that affected you the last year? We were talking. We were at the Navy Yard at the Beer Fest. That was like the last time we saw each other before everything shut down. We were out there. Everybody was having a great time, and then the brakes got put on. COVID has been a big kick in the rear. Um, there's no way to put it. It was devastating, not only for the tasting room, which was obviously as a restaurant was shut down, um, but for the wholesale cider market because it couldn't have happened at an absolutely worst time. Um, it was the week of St. Patty's Day, 2020, and what that meant was that you know all the bars and restaurants across our territory had stocked up heavy on alcohol because it's St. Patty's Day. You're you're expecting to sell a ton. And then St. Patty's Day didn't happen. So then, the, you know, all these bars and restaurants that even had partial openings had stock rooms full of beer and cider, and they weren't buying anything else. And it was just, you know, it's like for, I would say, six months, we couldn't sell a single keg to save our lives. I couldn't, I couldn't have given a keg away because nobody wanted it. You didn't call me. <laughs> I, I would have taken your keg, John. Yeah. Well, you know, and, 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 and what people want to think about in that sense is that, you know, with cider or beer or anything, these things have shelf lives. Right. You know, and nobody wants to buy a six-month-old keg. But, you know, we were planning on going into our spring session. Things were warming up. Things, you know, spring's a great time. We're going to ramp up, so we're 
product of the kegs, and then all of a sudden nobody wanted them. So now, what do you do with all that liquid? You don't want to pour it down the drain, so where, where do you go? You have no demand for your product. Uh, and one of the big changes was the shift to cans. Everything, for the better part of nine months, if it wasn't in an aluminum can or bottle, wouldn't move. What was your, I mean, at the time, you were doing some canning, you were doing some bottling. Yeah. It's really ramped up and you've really focused on canning and bottling. So you had that laid out yes. a little bit, but it wasn't that impactful as to what you were doing with, the, with your business, right? Pre COVID, we had three flavors in cans our original, our strawberry, or blueberry, which were our core three. After COVID, I think we're up to seven flavors in total that we have in stock. In um, stock? Yes, we are canning everything and everyone loves it our distributors definitely played a huge role in helping us survive through pushing cans now do you feel because of covid and that difficult experience that you've gone through do you feel like you've accelerated your growth process at least selling to the consumer through different avenues oh yes yeah i mean if this wasn't covid i'd say we were ready to expand um, we're already looking at bringing new fermenters for 2021 and a new canning line. Uh, so we can start canning ourselves without having to use outside canning sources. So, yeah, actually, in, in some weird, strange ways, COVID's, COVID has been kind of beneficial. Uh, because now, um, you know, during the heart of COVID, there was so many people going to, the, you know, the beer distributors and the liquor stores buying alcohol. I mean, what else were you going to do besides sit at home and get drunk? Um, it introduced a lot of people to our product because there were a lot of uh, stores that before I, I don't have any shelf space for them. like you guys. I got I got too many setters. I, I don't need anymore. All of a sudden, we're like, I need anything to put on my shelf because of the demand. And all of a sudden, they were like, Your stuff sells pretty good. We want to keep you on. So all of a sudden, like it was you know stores that wouldn't even give us the time of day suddenly are like now great customers. So in a way, COVID kind of helped us there. I like having this conversation now because when we look back, even six months ago, you might not have had that same perspective on the impact. But today you can at least say the doors are open. The lights are still on. We've got people coming in now. April 4th, you can now have more occupancy inside. I mean, I'm sure you're really excited about that if you choose to. Well, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Right. Philadelphia is not increasing Okay, so that's not coming up. They're, they're going to still be limiting as far as having that come on board. Philadelphia has been a little more conservative than the state overall. So, um, you know, I think the state currently is at 50%? Uh, April 4th is 50% if you have the proper circulation up to 75. Um, Philadelphia is going to be announcing the lift and the increase of capacity uh, by April 30th is what the city said is so, going to be the definite announcement before the end of the month. So we're still at 25% for at least another month. And then you have the outside you have the outside dining, which you have your everything spaced. And yep. one of the things that I thought about was you have the food program. Yep. A lot of, you know, and in Pennsylvania, for those that aren't aware, if you wanted to serve alcohol, you had to have food on the table. You had to have a quote-unquote meal. You already had that in place. Ironically, uh, under winery laws, you don't. Okay. And we are licensed as a winery. That's a brewery thing. So PA, when you get into the nuances... And a distillery thing, I guess, as uh, well. 
there's so many nuances, it's hard to keep up. Like, I talk to other breweries, like, even Punch Bay across the street, and they're like, oh, we can't do that. I'm like, we can. You know, it's just weird. So you're able to sell without food on the table, or? Yes. Uh, really? As a, yes, because the restaurant, quote-unquote restaurant, is a tasting room. Okay. A winery tasting room. So if you think about, if you think about, like, going on the PA wine trail, you go to a winery out in Central PA, you're not expecting food. You're just going in and taking a little sip of red wine or white wine and buying a couple bottles and going on your way. That's how the wall was written. But since we're a winery, that's how we get it. I never knew that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's like a whole, you're like a whole different animal now. Yeah. It's it's so weird. And then, you know, you get the whole thing where like breweries can brew cider up to eight and a half percent, but like, you know, we can't brew beer, but they can brew cider. It's, it's, it's so difficult to keep track of all the little changes, and um, there is legislation right now in Harrisburg to create a cidery license specifically for cideries because one of the other uh, issues that cideries face in Pennsylvania is since we are fall under the wine board, um, the wine board really focuses on Pennsylvania grape wines, but legally, cider is a wine. It's a, it's a product made from fruit. We just don't use grapes. We use apples. And there's been a, you know, a huge fight among cideries to say, no, no, we, you're, not, you're not promoting ciders. So it really comes down to the fact that they're, they're, there's money being handed over to be part of this. Yeah. But they're not doing anything in return yeah. to build you up and promote you. Now, if you look at like the PA, PA Warren Board, they advertise like PA red wines, PA white wines, grapes. But you'll never hear a, a, a lick about ciders. Yet they want money from me every year to say, well, you're a winery, so please pay us this excise tax. And eventually the cideries won a huge uh, victory in saying no. And the, you know, PLCB, which normally is something we, four letters we don't like to speak around here, Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board, they, 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 they acknowledge that, yeah, you don't have to pay them because they're not advertising you. They're not promoting you. So, you know, but now the, the challenge is to create a cidery license and create our own advertising board. Because there is there is a Pennsylvania Cider Guild. There is a Cider Guild. Right. Which has been the forefront of pushing for that cidery license. Um, but the Cider Guild is a group of cideries, an industry group, if you will. But it's not, it doesn't have any basis in state law. So that's where the changes need to be. So once the state law gets established, then you're going to have more of a marketing support arm to really educate the public, promote what you're doing... Yeah. And, and, and to get the word out. Well, most a lot of new legislation to read and learn. Yeah. Most likely the big change will shift from a winery license to a cidery license. Um, but it still hasn't been confirmed yet. It still has not passed hers. And that means you'll probably have to put hibachi grills in through the <laughs> dining room. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, I have to see what the law permits and what they're going to change. Who knows? We have an array of glasses here. <laughs> yep. And... I always love hearing your perspective, your take, what you're creating. Where should we start? Um, I would say start with the beginning of our flight boards. Okay. Uh, this is going to be our Sir Charles semi-dry original cider. It is so this is one. Of, this is the. This is the. This is the baby. This, this is, is where the flagship it, right? of our flagships. So when I was talking about the beer show, where we had the two flavors, like literally, we took the, the feedback from the public between those two flavors, and this is what was the result. And it's been our flagship straight up semi-dry apple cider since day one. 
it's very fresh on the nose, very apple forward. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. and and you almost it's almost like apple juice. You yep. don't get any hints of the apple skins or or anything that comes off of there. No tannins. Very straightforward. Very drinkable. You know exactly what to expect from the original. It is apple flavor with a slight sweetness on the end. It's got this beautiful, like, hay. Like, if if you're looking at hay um, out on the field, mm-hmm. it's got that color to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when uh, when I always call, tell my distributors, this is our steady end. When you have a customer who says, I just want a cider, this is what most bar are looking for. They want something that tastes like apples. Um, and that's the thing, is we get down the list as we get into the meat, uh, the, like, the dries and the uh, the apple wines will see the differences. Um, but for most people, especially American drinkers, that are still entering into the cider, uh, craft cider, you know, sort of uh, area, they expect the first cider they have to be apple. It should taste like an apple. And that's what this is designed to be. It tastes like an apple. Yep. It like tastes like an apple. But what you do with this, which to your point about where the cider industry was before the craft cider industry really really arrived, mm-hmm. you get this fruit sweetness forward, but it tails off into a nice dryness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's if you're thinking about the way craft cider should be, this is the quintessential example of what you want to understand as you move forward. Sure. That you're not gonna get that 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 sugary sweet in the back of the palate. Which makes this nice and refreshing, and you can really move forward and sip this and just enjoy this. Oh, yeah. It's a great year-round cider. You can drink it next to a fireplace, and you can drink it on an incredibly hot summer's day. I look and, and anywhere else yep. you want to. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Everywhere in between. Yeah. I mean, again, all of the Sir Charles line is designed to be a bridge. I want people that are coming from Woodchuck or Angry Orchard or other big mainstay cideries who are looking to say, all right, what else is in this market? What else is crap? I want you to venture through me first on your way to, you know, the Reverend Nats and the big hills in the world who have these heirloom varieties that are, you know, really very cider for it, where you get into, like, now you're getting into, all right, what apples are we talking about? Like, you know, like, what are the growing seasons that we're talking about? You know, know, this is meant to be that next middle step for the American cider drinker. Delicious, fresh, crisp, it's a great start. Fantastic. Yeah. So that's where if you're introducing somebody to the you know the cider world or the Philadelphia cider world, I mean, now I, I would say they want more. Mm-hmm. Right? They're saying, what's next? And we exactly. have more. And, you, and, and, and here's what the beauty when you come to Original 13, you're not gonna get a flight paddle of just four. You're gonna get six. <laughs> yeah. And you can do twelve too if you want, because you got plenty to try. Sure. What uh, what's the next one there, Petra? So, that we should move on to. We're gonna have the deep blueberry. I love this tour. This is this is like our own tour. This is oh, the blueberry one. Absolutely. Which, if you're in England right now, they're they're thumbing their nose or something oh, like that. Right? A little bit, yeah. You can't um, do this. So blueberries are hard because you need a lot of blueberries to make to get that all that flavor and juice out of. Uh, actually, it's the opposite. It's it's the opposite. Uh, yeah, if you've ever poured blueberry juice on your pants, you'll know how hard it is to get out. Uh, it, little, Don't get any ideas. Yes, a, a little dab will do you. Um, but, you know, the reason we went with blueberries, our second flavor, um, is New Jersey is the largest producer of blueberries in the country. Uh, specifically, uh, very close to my old sloppy drown, I grew up in Vineland Millville, is Hamilton, New Jersey, yep. which is the blueberry capital of the world, they claim. And so, uh, fresh blueberries is something we have access to. Uh, very easily, 
And so it made sense for us to um, go with this. And this is something you're going to have all year round. It is yes. our it, by far. This is my number one seller. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Blueberry's not going anywhere. And the color on it, I just love it. You still get apple on the nose. And I think that's really important to pursue because you're still drinking an apple cider. Yes. You don't want to lose the fact that you're not drink you're, you're not now drinking a blueberry cider. You're drinking an apple cider with fresh blueberries introduced into it. Correct. Yes. Is there anything else that makes this different from the Sir Charles, the the one we just had? Um, not particularly. I mean, the blueberry adds a really nice tartness. I mean, as you mentioned, the color. I mean, we use it as a base for a lot of cocktails. In fact, one of the selling points when we go out to bars and restaurants who are typically not familiar with other flavors of ciders to say, do you have a cocktail program? Yes. Great. Have you thought about making a cider cocktail? Here's a beautiful purple liquid that is a great base to start with making your, your cocktails with. And it's all natural. You know, it's, there's no food coloring. That comes right from the berry, you know, and it's got almost like a slightly... I mean, this bee's been sitting here for a minute, but when you first pour it, it's even got like a slightly bluish-purple foam to it, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, you know, for a lot of people, that's something they haven't seen. You can almost, if you were to pour this out almost in a wine glass, yeah. this, this, you've got this um, clarinet. I mean, what color? It's like a red, not clarinet. I, I want to think, it's, it's not as dark as like a Cabernet. Like a yeah, or it's, like a ruby. Like yeah. uh, there was a certain, I guess... Um, uh, a crayon, a Creole crayon color I was yeah. reaching for there. but uh. <laughs> well, When that first comes in, it's a, it's a puree. So we, we, we bring it in um, sort of like a, a slurry of mushed up blueberries. Um, and it's, it's almost black. Uh, it's, that's how dense blueberry, uh, not, it's not really juice, it's actually crushed blueberries. And it's just, you know, when you put it in the cider, just a little bit will just go a long way. I mean, you don't need to add a whole ton of blueberries to change the profile. You talked about making a cocktail. I mean, what cocktail would you make with this? What would be a good cocktail for this? It's such a fantastic cider to go ahead and use and pair with gin and lemon juice. Um, it makes phenomenal spring and summertime cocktails. Um, I have personally put this in brambles. I will go ahead and turn the blueberry cider into a syrup and add that into my cocktails uh, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite cocktails here is the, uh, what's the vinegar one? Shrub, you do a shrub? And those shrubs, which is made from, we actually took some of the blueberry cider and turned it into blueberry cider vinegar. And it is, I had never had a vinegar cocktail before until Petra and Maggie had introduced them to me. I was blown away by how amazing it was. So I, I think what that really says to what you're doing here, you're, you're not just selling cider either. You're not just offering the public cider. You're offering variations of what they could do with cider. Exactly. And then understanding that there's such a versatile world. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Not just, hey, I'm just going to grab a can. I'm just going to sit down and just drink a glass. There's so much you could do with this. Oh, yeah. I just, this is, same thing with the first one, flavorful. I, I don't want to use the same adjectives to describe it, um, but it's really delicious. Now, the, the one, Sir Charles is obviously in a can. And this is canned. Yes. Is this something now? What? What's really? How are you shipping? Are you out of state now, or are you just in Pennsylvania? Eastern PA, New Jersey. So, if anybody in our listening area wants to get this shipped to them, they can go to your website. We, or how do they? How do they gain access to this? So we don't direct ship. I mean, they would have to work with their local beer distributors. But you know, um, 
this sounds so corny, but I tell people this all the time. If you want our product, go to your finisher, wherever you buy our, you know, beer or cider, and ask them, can, you know, do you have Sir Charles? Go to the person who makes the buying decisions, which is usually the beer manager, and you're usually always there. Tell them you want Sir Charles. They will remember that. So when they're working with their, you got to remember, we're right now in a sea of brands. There are so many brands of everything that you get lost. Have just that simple one question. Do you have Sir Charles? That beer manager will remember that. And when he's looking at the list, he goes, oh, Sir Charles, somebody asked me about that. No, I'll take a couple cases. That helps us out so much in promoting the brand. So growing your brand right now is really, you know, something as you continue to get your name out there. As we are the consumer, yeah. it's going to those establishments and getting in their ear and saying, you know, I, I would have had this if you had it, right? I would yes. have I would have enjoyed this if you had it, or I see that what you have, I would rather have this, right? Yeah, yeah. When, you're in a, when you're a bar manager or a beer distributor or whatever, or a liquor store, you know, those people are there to make money at the end of the day. They don't want, they don't want stuff on their shelves that's not moving. They want stuff constantly turning over. And if there's people asking for a product, they're going to make that because you got to remember, they're being inundated every day with big name companies that are coming to them with, here's my latest site or here's the latest thing. Hey, Bonnie, you know, give me shelf space, give me shelf space. There's only so much shelf space. But when consumers walk in the door and say, you know what, I'm willing to put cash on the table to buy that six pack, those guys will listen. That is the biggest compliment anyone can give me is to go in and say, I want that on my shelf. Okay. All right, so what's uh, what's that next one we want to have on our shelf? So the <laughs> next cider we have in front of us is going to be our semi-sweet uh, cider that we offer, our Strawberry Valkyrie. This um, is the sweetest one we have. It is. Absolutely delicious. You get a lot of strawberry. It's okay. one of the things I love about this. You get strawberry on the nose. This yep. is... this is. It is not subtle at all. If you went past, you know, and there were a bunch of strawberries just sitting out, mm-hmm. and, and they started to really ripen... And it hits you in the nose. This is a sweet, beautiful strawberry essence to that. I, I almost like, I, I say this in other, about other things, but I hope Yankee Candle listens yeah. to our podcast. <laughs> because we give them plenty of ideas to yeah, make Yankee yeah. Candles yeah. out of. This, was, this would be like, but the other thing you get on this, there's, a, there's like a strawberry creaminess to this. Like um, Starburst. Starburst. Yeah. You, it's almost like a, a strawberry cream Starburst on the nose to this. So, and where does the cream come in or is that just me? Well, so there's actually a second fruit in there. Uh, it's apricot. Ah! Um, because, uh, again, this attests to my cider maker Clint's aptitude when we said, listen, we want to do a sweet cider. We want something sweeter. Um, we decided on strawberry. We started, obviously, with mixing strawberry and, and, and our base cider together, and it didn't taste right. We were like, this doesn't taste like what most people think of when they think strawberry. And he said, let's put some apricot in there. And I'm like, apricot? That doesn't taste anything like a strawberry. He's like, trust me. We blended it out. We did a bunch of tastings. Sure enough, that was the hit. It was that little extra fruit. And when, you know, we don't, we don't really, I mean, it's in the ingredients list, but it's not advertised on the can because the strawberry is the foreign fruit. But without that apricot, it doesn't taste like a strawberry at all. This is one of those things where I want to start to do because I think in a lot of cases, and we talk about what sitting down with you now, mm-hmm. you can take us through the flavor profile, the nose, and all that. But it's almost like I wish you would have said to me, "What do you smell? <laughs> or what do you taste?" Because 
initially, as I said, I smelled strawberry cream. Mm-hmm. You say apricot, and I'm like, yeah, it's right there. Yep. It's strawberry, and then you, you get the apricot, and you get the same flavor. And we've had this a number of times. I would have never said apricot until now you say apricot. Yeah. And it's that's to Clint, I mean, that's a home run. Yeah. That's, well, a, that's a grand slam idea. And, and you mentioned a specific word, uh, starburst, which for many Americans is how they define what a fruit should taste like. And, you know, you, we have to, when you're working with fruit, you have to sort of acknowledge that for many people, you know, you know, I always tell people, what does grape taste like? Well, most people will point to, like, bubblegum, grape bubblegum or grape juice, which isn't really what a grape tastes like. But if you're trying to advertise something as this fruit, you have to be able to, you know, you know, bring to the consumer their expectations of what that fruit tastes like. When you talk about, and again, now it seems like the strawberry's there, but they're so complex. There's so much complexity in that apricot finish. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a dried apricot because you get such a sweetness to it. Um, but you get that if you were to eat a dried apricot right now, you still get that like a fibrous texture texture to it, and that's what really comes through. And then it finishes with this just nice dry, pleasant um, feature that, that lingers. Yeah. One of my one of my favorites. It's not a cocktail per se, but uh, this was actually something my father came up with because he loves the strawberry, which was a, a can of strawberry Valkyrie with a shot of Tito's vodka dropped in it. Um, works. So for your consumers who are looking to take their cider to the next level, make some. I'll tell you what, I mean, I'm, we are we are in an area yeah. where, I mean, I'm thinking I want to introduce like a little bourbon or rye into this. Mm-hmm. because oh, Presidente. Okay. All right. There, all right. I, I just set that up. Go ahead. Oh, that, well, we'll get into that on our next floor. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that, is, uh, that is my drink of choice. But we'll talk about that when we get to the Atacama. Which one's the Atacama? The Atacama is going to be our fourth sample. All right. Today. So which one's the? Th- but that's the fourth one. Yeah, we're Absolutely. There. Oh, yeah. look at that. Yep, we are. I have no the- notes here. I didn't even know this is the way we were going. Mm-hmm. And it's called Ad a comma. No, no. Atacama. So Atacama is a desert in uh, on the border between Peru and Chile. See, that's my Philadelphia mind and accent it's Atacama, thinking yeah. it's Atacama. No, no. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> The Atacama Desert is 17,000 feet above sea level. It is the driest place on Earth. Mm-hmm. It is so dry that not even bacteria lives in the soil. And since this is our driest cider, I said, yeah, it's a good name. Okay. <laughs> so this is a, a pure dry. There is zero sugar in it. Uh, there's no other fruits, no other flavors. It's basically pure cider. The only thing we really add to it is a little bit of tannin. Um, and a little bit of malic acid to sort of just blend out the fruit a little bit. But other than that, that's pretty much straight side. There's really not a lot that comes off on the nose here. It's not the same as that first one we had where you get a lot of this bold apple on the nose. It's a very neutral, non-abrasive cider. And it's also the base for all of the ciders that we create. What I get more in this is more apple skin or or what you would get out of... Um, you know, that first bite you take of an apple. Yeah. It, it's, it's not more of a sweet apple, but it's more of a, 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 a less sweet apple, I guess. Yeah. But that is what cider, this is very much what we've seen in like an English cider. Um, we used to advertise it as an English cider. I've kind of moved away from that because we're not English. It doesn't really make any sense to advertise it as that. But this is very close to what you would find in England with 
ciders. Um, in fact, a lot of people who are not, you know, just coming into the cider uh, world, they will ask me, well, it doesn't taste like apples. And I would go, well, does a Merlot taste like grape juice? It doesn't. To a gra- that's a great point. It doesn't. Right. You know, and so when you ferment and you don't add any type of reintroduction of fruit juice back on top, it's a wine at that point. It tastes completely different from its original form. I, I think that's where you start, where you talked about the picture, the, the complexity, the technical questions. Oh, yeah. Because I think as we've gone, I know what blueberry is. I know what strawberry yep. is. I know what that, you know, apple yeah. flavor but and this you've one, gotten to the one that puzzles you, yeah. But everyone seems to love. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think this is um, this is where you start to mature that cider palate, mm-hmm. and you start to all right. I want to understand dry cider. I want to yeah. is the same way as you pointed out. Different varietals of wine. Yeah, we you you really want to go through that whole color wheel of opportunity with apple cider. And this really is that expression that we can really sit down and talk about this for a good amount of time. Well, you know, it's interesting. So when we look at our sales numbers, so the first three you had, the original, the blueberry and strawberry, by far dominate our wholesale. Like everything that's on the shelf, those three, especially the strawberry and the blueberry, are my two biggest sellers in a can on the shelf. In the tasting room, though... It's the bone dry. Bone dry by a long Mm slot. So when you're able to supply people with education and you're able to supply people with an explanation as to why this tastes the way they do, suddenly people shift their concept in their mind as to, ah, this is what a cider should be. I, I think that almost harkens to the idea of a Riesling. Mm-hmm. When Riesling's in, the, Riesling's in the 50s, 40s, 60s were not sweet. They were dry. They were yeah. complex. Rieslings were the Chardonnay mm-hmm. of what we and, – and then you know there was no market for it, so they made them – sickly sweet blue nun and all those things Mm -hmm. and i think this is that example of this is the this is the creative side this is this is really where you take your abilities to make a cider and introduce complexity to it yeah the first three are cider 101 this is two Mm -hmm. you know great i'm getting my mba (laughs) think about like a college student who's been drinking you know miller and budweiser and then all of a sudden you give them a chimney all you know like that's overwhelming. You're, like, your mind is suddenly blown. Like, wait a minute, a beer can taste different? Yeah. Like, it tastes like a real beer? Yeah. Well, it's not, well, you say that coming <laughs> from an area of expertise, but if it's your first time, you're suddenly saying, well, no, in my head, this is all this has always tasted like, and now all of a sudden you're opening me up to new paths. Mine was Blue Moon. I mean, that to me was like a, something I, I had never had, and yeah. it was just something different. And to mm-hmm. me, Blue Moon is very much akin to us. It was the bridge from... You know, the Millers and the Budweiser's and the Coors Lights of the World to other beers into the craft market. And that's what this is supposed to be. It's the bridge. It's the next step in your journey. And we don't want you to stop with us. Like, we promote every cidery around us. Like, we will tell people, hey, if you love what we have, go to Halen Troop. If you love what we have, go to, you know, go out to Arsenal in Pittsburgh. Try their ciders, you know, because now you've, you've had the bridge. You've seen the light. You've seen that there's more than cider to offer I think that's one of the commentaries specifically about when we talk to people in the cider industry about how much they really promote each other. Oh, they yes. really do. I mean, but that's – honestly, that's the case with breweries and distilleries and the people we get to meet there. It, it seems like though there's something more about cideries that they they really elevate the ability to say, 
if you like this, I mean, try this. Yes. I think it's because there's so few of us around right now that cross-promotion's the only way we're going to grow and expand our specific industry within the craft spirits and beer, cider, wine revolutions that are happening. I love that point of view. I mean, you understand the the necessity of rising tides lift all boats, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Exactly. To a point where you get saturated and you're like, now we'll start to kill these people off. (laughs) (laughs) So again, cider only represents three to four percent of the, you know, American, you know, alcohol consumption. If cider grows, it grows my business. So, you know, I have no issue directing people to other ciders. They're not my competition. We're all in this together. Because I can tell you, of the cideries in the Philadelphia area, in the Philadelphia region, yeah. every one of, as a cidery, has their own take on it. Oh, yes. You have your own personality. Oh, yeah. So it's not like you're exactly, you know, it's not like your Sir Charles semi-sweet is competing against free cons, this or that, or the other thing, no. you all have your own expressions and you all have your own personality. And, and, and yeah, you have to be different. You know, you can't just copy each other. That's, right. No, that's not the whole point. But the whole point is you can't also, you don't want to be that guy who's like dissing everybody in the corner. Like, of course. That doesn't help anybody. You know, I want Freecon or Arsenal or Big Hill. I want them all to succeed mm-hmm. because when they succeed, I will succeed too. You what mentioned happened? El Presidente. Uh, so what? What was? So talk about that because now I'm curious. So uh, you know, there's many times where you know you need to have a drink in your hand, but you still have to stay functional at a bar. Um, so for me, it was the Atacama. I actually first was introduced with cider with Magners. That was one of my very first big ciders, and of course, Magners is known for being served on ice. So I'm the lunatic at the bar that will still put my cider on ice. Then I decided, well, sometimes you need to go a little higher than that. So I said, well, why don't we put a little bitters and a shot of whiskey in there? And that became the El Presidente. So it's a tulip of Atacama on the rocks, dash of bitters with a shot of, you know, American blend whiskey. I prefer few, but whatever you have. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds nice, too. <laughs> oh, a get you a new take on the citywide. I, I All in one glass. But here's, but here's to your point. It's the versatility of cider. Oh, yes. You're also opening up people too, and that I have to tell you, we, we talked prior to starting the podcast. We've we've met a number of other cider producers and other cideries, but we've never really talked about the cider as a cocktail vehicle or a cocktail base. So this part of it is exciting because to the point about I think what people have realized with COVID, they're doing more stuff at home, right? Mm-hmm. They are and. Making their own cocktails, and we've seen this explosion in in ready to drink cocktails. Um, these companies, like we just uh, we we sat down with the the great folks at Five Dirty, and they're doing you know martinis, dirty martinis. I mean, look at all that's come out of of just this last year. It has created quite a lot of creativity uh, in the service industry community. There's tons of new ways that we've been able to refocus bar programs to go ahead and make it easier to follow COVID guidelines and to go ahead and provide a way for people to drink safely at their homes while still being able to move inventory and increase profits. But not just safely, creatively. Mm -hmm. Creatively. Because I can tell you, we're not good mixologists at (laughs) home. I mean, we've made stuff and I had this great idea and now we have to drink it. (laughs) But I think what's really important is I hope 
And I really believe in our, our conversations we're having, the public wants to get we, – we, we've, we've done that home thing. Mm-hmm. We've 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 gotten good at making some cocktails. Yeah, yeah. but we really want to go. You and want the great cocktail. I, I want to. I I just want to sit at a bar again. Sure. And enjoy a really great cocktail. And I don't want it to be in a plastic cup. And I <laughs> yeah. and I and and you still got a minute on that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. You just but, want reality to go back to being comforted. Right. I mean, yeah. The, the you, sense you, of comfort of being at a bar, being served your favorite cocktail in a glass in front of you is something that is dearly missed with everyone. That's the feedback we always get. Yeah. I, I think right now, I mean, you talked about making a bramble, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Absolutely. I'm not making a bramble at home. I'm not <laughs> making a shrub. I mean, I can, I know there are companies that make these things. Yeah. But to the creativity of the bartender, owed to the bartender at this point. And, oh, yeah. and I hope people really have more of an appreciation of, of the quality, the education, and the understanding of what a bartender does at their craft oh, yeah. today that we, we, we want to go back to. So Petra and Maggie, who have uh, just recently kind of taken over my management team here at the Tasting Room, have completely revamped their cocktails. I think we're up to 12? We're at eight cocktails right now, okay. um, but we are slowly adding in more. Um, we have four in-house cocktails and then four bagged cocktails, which are able to either be consumed in-house or taken to go with you. But we are working on adding more drinks um, and doing everything within budget as capacity hopefully increases. But we just hope that, you know, again, your listeners will look to cider as possibly another cocktail ingredient. It's Play a- around with it. See, and again, that's, that's what we talked about. This isn't one of those conversations, and I'm, I'm always fascinated as to the direction our conversations are going to take. Yeah. Because now we get to talk about, hey, cider is not just, hey, it's in a can, it's in a bottle, just consume it and move on. Now you're like, oh my God, I could put a gin in here. I could put a little mm-hmm. whiskey in here. I could put some different ingredients and just raise this up. Have it to marinate it in like wheats or something. Like well, I was going to say, you know, to blow your mind, I mean, a lot of our food menu is cider forward. It's we put... Cider in our Brussels sprouts. We put cider in our, our fried onions. I mean, cider, that's the other thing is like people think, of, you know, we, we all have heard of a recipe to, of chicken with beer on it or something like that or whiskey in your, your, your steak or something like that to add flavor to it. Try it with cider. Mm-hmm. Play around with it. Be creative. That's what Americans are good at. Yeah. The Atacama is my favorite addition out of the four that we've tasted so far. Four cocktails because it is one of my favorite alternatives to like champagne or sparkling wine with a fraction of the cost in cocktails. So what you're it's saying is, look, offer. you could do that, and you could add a little if you're making thinking mimosa mm-hmm. or some different champagne cocktails that you can absolutely add, right yeah. or something. You know, you're just adding a little bit of uh, you know fruit to that. You can create a whole different flavor profile. Sure. With it. Mm-hmm. We've done cider ice cream at the bar. I mean, there's. There's so many possibilities. All right, what people need to know, if, if, if you're in Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. even New York, yeah. you need to add Original 13 to your I've got to get here list yeah. because if your perception of cider is just apple cider, hard cider, you're missing the boat. You really are. I mean, you're putting in your food, you're making cocktails, you're making great cider, and there's such a variety to try and really, in, in, you know, introduce to what you're, what you're, you're not having yet. Yeah, and if you have the time, 
come for a week, drive out to Central PA, you know, visit all the other. I think you said come for a week. <laughs> just sit here. Oh, yeah. I mean, you want to come here? Hang out here. I mean, uh, you know, I've had that happen. I was like, come for a week. I'm like, wow, you know. But you know, well, I think a lot of people, you know, when they think wine, they think Napa Valley. Right. I, I'd like the people to start thinking about this part of Pennsylvania. How, you know, from Philadelphia out to York, uh, down through Virginia and Maryland, there are some amazing cideries. And you can make a bus tour. You can make a weekend. I mean, look, I, I just would. I look. I, I you make a weekend out of it. Yeah. But I would say you can really make a strong, enjoyable day, or you could stay two days in Philadelphia. Oh yes. And you've got enough cider choices mm-hmm. oh, yeah. to really enjoy the differences of what different people are trying and, and doing with cider. Absolutely. So. Let's talk about you guys and have them come here first. Absolutely. Start here. Start here. And then we'll direct you on. We'll get we'll get yep. you a hotel room or an Airbnb <laughs> and then you can come back. <laughs> What's the next one, Petra? So the fifth cider that we're sampling today is going to be our immortal peach. It's immortal our spring peach. Immortal. 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 Um it's our spring seasonal. We have had it on draft for a little under two weeks now. We are super excited about it. This is one of my favorite products that we create. So one of the things that obviously your viewers can't see is um, our designs for all our artwork on our ciders are uh, all based around the original Sir Charles helmet. So Sir Charles, we decided to design a knight's helmet for that original logo. So um, the blueberry has a uh, sort of an old school diving helmet. The strawberry has a Valkyrie helmet. Uh, For this one, uh, Immortal Peach, Peach's scientific name, name derives from the Latin gift from Persia. And the Immortals were the Persian warriors uh, during the time of, like, Alexander the Great. Uh, so we decided to name it after them. I'm just speechless. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea I was going to get this type of education, John. Oh, yeah. Our distribution like, info is you know what? quite educational. You say that, Dawn, and oh, I'm, like, thinking the same thing. I, I don't so want to drink this. I just want to smell. I just want to, like, I just want to just smell this all day. Wow, this is, and, and I know you want me to consume it because it, it's not as you know, good for you if I just smell it. Well, we have plenty more downstairs. Yeah, I okay. can more. <laughs> I think this just became my favorite. It's a great wow. choice. Wow. It is so good. We didn't, do, we didn't do this for you today, but one of the things we love to do with this one specifically is we top it with a vanilla bourbon cream mm-hmm. at the bar in the pint glass. So it's actually a layer of, of heavy whipped cream shaken with a little bit of bourbon in it. So when you drink it through there, you really get that peaches and cream vibe. Mm-hmm. I'm just speechless on this one. So, what is the base, the anaconda for this? Atacama. Oh, yes. man. Atacama. I'm, I'm, uh, you know what? I've already had four yeah. of these, so please excuse me. Um, I do like the name anaconda for a future cider. Okay, so. Snake. Isn't there a snake? There is. There is the anaconda snake. Um, All right, so I'm just helping. The, I, I didn't make exactly. a mistake. I no. just was introducing something. You're just talking that, about a future cider we haven't gotten Thanks, to Petra. You, you really yeah. you really smoothed that over for me. Um, yeah, I mean, we only have like 18 more ciders to try <laughs> here on the podcast, which you're not going to hear about, but uh, yeah. So, so for us, our ciders are made with the same base apples. Uh, which is different from other ciders. So if you go to, like, so, for example, Ancho in Washington, D.C., um, they are very much about blending different types of apples. And that's a great segue into other types of ciders. For us, because we tend to put other fruits on there, um, the fruit kind of dominates the apple flavor. So it doesn't make sense to, like, change up our apple variety if we're just going to add peaches and blueberries to it. Is there floral in here, too? There's something floral. The nose is a little bit, like, a little bit lily-esque. 
that I found. And I almost get the 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 finish on here becomes a little herbaceous, like a thyme or even oregano that I get. Just it, it's there and then it goes away. Definitely didn't put any of that. I, I'm sure you did. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't. But what what I really would um, you know really talk about with this is that this there's a little bit of uh, an adventure it's with unique. this. It's definitely it unique. really is. Peach is a, a great fruit. Um, it's one that you don't see a lot in the market. Um, I feel bad. You guys have empty glasses now, and we don't. Yeah, we I mean, drink, we, I have... drink it for the first hour. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, I, I love peach. I love to work with it. I'd love to actually do a peach wine where we actually ferment the peach. Uh, maybe that's a future project. It's a, it's a great local fruit, especially here in like, South Jersey and Pennsylvania. It's something that I would really love to play around with some more. I could also see a cocktail with this. I mean, now you've got me thinking cocktails on this. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good. Um, yeah. what, uh, a Bellini is made with peach, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so, yeah. yeah. I feel like this would go great in a Bellini. Um, personally, something I want to go ahead and try with the peach that I haven't yet is do a chamomile honey simple syrup, oh. um, turn the peach into something a little bit thicker, maybe turn that into a syrup itself, and then add both of those with whiskey. Um, I feel like mixing those with Fuse, Amer- like with Fuse American or their rye uh, would be a very great fruit forward old pa- like old fashioned play. Yeah, there's a line out the door right now <laughs> for that. You suggested it. We've got people waiting for it. That oh would be God. fantastic. That would be incredible. Yeah. This is, you know, again, kudos to you for this. Um and 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 this uh this one expression that you're you're doing. This is great. What do we got next? I mean, we got two so, different colors of stuff I think here. There are two different ones, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh we are moving on to our meads. Um which I absolutely love and adore. Um, we are going to start with our buzz bomb mead. So the buzz bomb is going to be our single hive mead. It's a session mead, so it's about half the ABV of meads traditionally. Ours comes in at 6%. Um, and the hive that we get the honey from uh, harvests primarily on cranberry flowers. So it's a very unique flavor. And out of all of the products that we make, this is my go-to every day that I'm here. So talk about that, because you started out with cider. What brought you to doing mead? Uh, cider and mead have a long history together. Um, in fact, I mean, if you look through like a lot of the historical books on you know, cider in, in you know, colonial days, it was oftentimes sweetened with honey. Um, there's a, a, a famous drink, it's called Sizer, which is a, a 50-50 blend with cider and, and mead. Um, so, you know, for people who are into the cider game, um, especially if you have a winery license, um, this is one of the ingredients you get to play with. Um, honey is, you know, with things like Game of Thrones and things like that, have brought mead to the forefront in the public's mind. Um, it's still a challenging drink for a lot of people because um, mead runs a huge flavor gamut. It runs from something as sweet as soda to something as spiritous as whiskey. And for most people, depending on what mead they last had, they think, oh, this is what mead tastes like. And it's like, no, it's like, it goes all over the place where like cider doesn't quite jump around that much. Um, The other problem is with the the current uh, impact of uh, climate change on the bee population, honey is incredibly expensive. But it's a product that I think really pairs well with cider, and I would love to do more with it. 
I, I look. I, I, we find mead interesting. We love mead, um, and all the different things that you can do with mead. And the same thing that you're introducing different fruit flavors, different spices to mead. Um, there's so much complexity and so much flavor you can add to mead. Well, one of the cool, like as Petra mentioned, this is a single hive. So this, all this honey came from a single hive that flavored off of a cranberry bog, and you will taste notes of cranberry. Mm-hmm. We didn't add that. We didn't do anything. It's just from the honey. That's those notes come from it's the bees. Now you mentioned a session. Yes. So a session, as you said, is a mixture between a cider and a mead. No, that's a sizer. Sizer. Okay. Um, so we've done a sizer in the past. This is just a mead. Um, it's a session mead, which just means that it's going to be half the ABV of most of mead categories. Um, most meads are going to clock in somewhere between 12 to 14 and a half percent um but ours comes in at around six yeah, my first my first introduction to mead was in ireland at blood ready castle and um somebody handed me like this huge mug of their hand homemade mead and it, it tasted like i was drinking whiskey that's like i think it was like 13 percent alcohol and it was it had that flavor profile but i mean when we you taste these meads it's completely different they don't taste anything like that. And that's that's a cool thing about me. Like, I would just want to play so much more with it. I think, you know, for us, again, taking us through the vision mm-hmm. or helping us understand and really pointing out what we're tasting yeah. is important. Because when you when, when people come here, they really get help to understand and better. I mean, really, what you talked about with if you promote and help to let people know about other you know, cideries, just the same thing. If you give me the education about what I'm enjoying or what I'm tasting, like the cranberry part of that, now I really, I get a sense of that from what you're pointing out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to to how you're introducing this to the consumer. I really do. I mean, Petra, on a weekly basis, how many times do we hear from a customer? I don't typically drink cider, but I really liked everything I had. I would say at least 25 on a Friday and Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. That's me. I'm really particular with ciders, mm-hmm. and I love all your ciders. Yeah. I mean, I'm so happy to hear that. That's awesome. We often see couples come in, one's a cider drinker, one isn't. Mm-hmm. The other one starts with a beer, and all of a sudden, oh, I'll, I'll taste that. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Drink, I'm drinking that atacama. Like, I want a pint of that atacama or something, you yeah. know, and it's so funny. It's I like, keep seeing the snake every time you see it. <laughs> see, I messed things up. Now you're going to have to add the atacama. I don't know. <laughs> That's the next cider, the fermented adventure Atacana. <laughs> yeah. What's this last one? So the last sample that we have for you guys today is going to be the second mead we have on draft. This is our strawberry Szechuan mead. Um, I had this when we were here so last. Good. I love this. I love this. This is just mind blowing. It is always a crowd pleaser. Everyone falls in love with the strawberry Szechuan. Um, my favorite part about this mead is the fact that even though it sounds like it's going to go ahead and be really sweet because of the strawberry name, uh, it's really refreshing because of the mint notes in the mead itself. Yeah, that's exactly what I And again, again, this is what people get to experience. If they go to the bar or you, you know, whether it's been you or your, every, I don't remember, but I love when you explain what the what you're going to taste because we've had that introduction i remember talking about the mint notes Mm -hmm. and so you just brought that back yeah that you're not just that's that's the key i mean you're not just going to put a flight down in front of somebody and say 
oh, this is your Sir Charles, and this is your strawberry, and blah, blah, you know, you're going to say, this is what you're going to experience. That, that's been our experience. Mm-hmm. You've really explained what we can expect through the, and then I have to go back and go, which one was that? <laughs> <laughs> what, what am I tasting? The blueberry, the strawberry, I don't know. Well, the best part about the flight board is that we arrange it in a way that from start to finish, it reads down the same way as our menu. So if you forget where you are, you just go ahead and look online or look on the board right behind us. That is so good. That is so good. This is That is the only mead uh, that we've made more than once. We've probably done six different meads. This is the only one we've had multiple requests over the years to bring back. I think we've made it now three times. I can see why. So what's the future of original 13 look like? You've, you've, you've learned from COVID. You're springboarding out of it now, hopefully. What's the future look like? Global domination. Gotcha. Yep. <laughs> Honestly, um, you know, with our process, again, you know, we are 100% fresh press juice. Um, even though we're an urban cidery, from the time the juice was an apple to the time it enters my tank is less than 24 hours. That proposed... That, challenges you to, because you're working with fresh fruit, not from concentrate, you have a limited radius that you can deliver your product. So, you know, for me, if I was to say, you know, what would be my end game, I'd like to be able to stretch from New York to maybe DC. That would be a comfortable drive where I could make sure that my product is delivered fresh. Beyond that, we'd have to look at some something else. But right now, I'd like to get into New York this year. I'd like to get down to DC and Baltimore next year. Um, those are my, my short-term goals. But you know, one of the things that we are settled on, um, that me and my brewer are 100% locked and step with, is we will never use concentrates. We will never use artificial flavors. We will avoid preservatives whenever we can. You know, everything has to stay as fresh as possible. And we've held to it so far. John, to your point, that's why your cider and now your mead is so good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because you understand the freshness of what you're starting with. Yeah. Why do you want to mess that up? Why would you even want to, you know, kind of go in that direction? Because uh, what people don't understand is there's um, a scaling factor when it comes to cider. When you start to get into national distrib- distribution, you have you can't just transport juice from a local orchard. You're going to need apples from all over the country. And you're not going to ship raw juice because it just wastes too much. It, you know, you, you're going to want, you're thinking about transportation costs. You're thinking about, okay, how does that affect my price on the shelf? That's why big companies move to concentrate. They want to use fresh juice, but it's not economically viable at that scale. To, to, to scale, yes. you just have to start thinking, like when you took your granddad's original formula, mm-hmm. was a small 50, which is a 50 gallon, 50 gallon drum. 50 gallon. Yeah. To what you have now, yeah. mm-hmm. you still had to figure out the formulas, the recipes to yeah. get up to that level. Right. So but you have to start thinking about how are you, world domination doesn't come, yeah. there's a cost to that. Yeah. I mean, there would be, you know, we could probably look to triple our capacity in this building and that would be something that our suppliers could work with. Beyond that, we're starting to push the limits of what local orchards can do. So then you start getting into, all right, well, where do we get apples from? Now I'm going to have to start pushing into New York or further north or Canada or Michigan or something like that. Now you get into transportation costs, and all of a sudden your cost of your juice goes from what it is now and increases. Now all of a sudden your your cider has to go up, and nobody wants to spend that. 
you know, there's a price limit. So what I'm hearing you say is there's a there's an original 13 in Michigan. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that's that the you best can way source to go. local apples. There's yeah. an original yeah. 13 in Washington where you're sourcing local apples, and then you never have to deviate. I think from that, the model that you have. Yeah. Or we just need the entire state of Pennsylvania to turn into an orchard to yes. supply us enough juice. I think, you know, and Petra, <laughs> but you make that point. The, it, it's like right now you see farmers understanding, well, you know what? I'll grow different corn varietals because look at what yeah. is in need for, you know, the distillation industry and the beer industry. Absolutely. I will now dedicate a certain part of my farm to grow apples. Absolutely. You know, Hamilton, you mentioned, will start growing more blueberries. Sure. Because you're going to need them. <laughs> So, but, you know, I mean, look at if there's a need, if there's a demand, people will change their growing or what they're farming yeah. to meet that demand. Yeah. So I, I think to your point, yeah, I think for us, a regional distribution, again, Pennsylvania, up through New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Baltimore, D.C. is feasible at this location. If we have to grow beyond that, yeah, we're probably going to have to set up a new location in the Midwest or out in, I would, oh my God, I would. With all those apples, oh my god, they have so many good varieties of apples. I would just love it. I'm gonna catch him in an hour googling homes. I know, right? (laughs) I was gonna say, how about an OG 13 in England? I mean, I don't know how that would go over over there. I have a feeling they wouldn't like us that much. (laughs) No, I think they'll. I think they're gonna love you just fine. Now, look, I mean, before COVID hit, what was it like here in your? Cidery. What what did people enjoy? What did people do? And I guess my point is, when all this is yeah. kind of to the point where people can come back, what things can they expect besides the great cocktails and the great cider and the great mead that you're making? What will they? I mean, you've got probably the most board games of any of any place we've ever been to. Yes. But what what can people expect when they come in here and you get the capacity back up? Um, well, we're, I can tell you not only here at the tasting room, but for people who are consumers outside of our territory, we're going to continue the canning. Um, so we're going to be planning on releasing um, three additional uh, varieties of our Atacama, so our dry ciders. We're going to be releasing all of our seasonals, so that's the, the peach right now, but also our cherry, our blood orange, our pumpkin spice. Okay. Um, those will all be in cans. Um, and then from there, we'll have to see. We've already done some big tall bottle stuff, so we have the scrumpy, the Irish scrumpy. We did one uh, called Atacama Uncensored, which was an unfiltered, literally nothing done to it, uh, cider, which has just people love. Um, so we're probably going to start to branch out and start doing some smaller matches for the tasting room. Events. Events. I mean, the cocktails are going to be huge. We're going to continue having our fresh menu. Again, always coming up with new things. We have specials every weekend. We're going to see more of that. For right now, I just want to see the crowds come back. I mean, there was a time in this place where on a Saturday you couldn't move. It was so crowded, um, and it was great, and we loved it. We love that energy, and we want that to come back. The games will come back. I'll always be here. That's been a personal hobby of mine. I, all those board games are mine. I brought them from home. Um, I want to bring Quizzo Nights back. They was, were huge. Well, you have us. an empty house now. That I do. <laughs> no board games. <laughs> I have a couple I left at home. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I mean, we want to continue all this, and you know what, to your point, I'd really love to see about opening a satellite. Um, you know, I'd love to see maybe about opening an OG-13 out in Lancaster or Adams County uh, in Central PA and, and grow 
growing the brand. I'd love to see that. I think that's exciting. And I guess, look, selfishly, because I look at certain things, is there a barrel program right now for what you're doing in ciders or meads, or is that in the future, or not necessarily anywhere you want to go? It's in discussions. Um, in the past, we have aged the scrumpy, um, and that's how we got our Irish scrumpy, which is the St. Patty's Day um, premiere. But currently, we are partnering up with the amazing folks at Philadelphia Distilling. Um, their parent company, Samson and Suri, also owns Few. So we are in discussions about seeing if we can go ahead and get some barrels from them um, and see what we can throw in at Tage. We didn't bring it up here today. Uh, the curmudgeon, which is based loosely on the scrumpy recipe, was aged in a virgin uh, French oak barrel for nine months. Um, that We can always taste that at the bar. Sorry, your, customer, your viewers can't see it, but... Uh, but um, I would, uh, I would definitely like to see more barrel products. Yeah, I mean, I realize. Look, I mean, you've got your inventory, especially what you talked about. With you need to keep the lights on. Yeah. You need to keep you know staff going and everything else to stick something in a barrel for a while and wait and kind of hope or not sure how that's going to turn out is impactful for you. Yeah. But tasting your ciders, you know, you almost think about wow the impact of what that would be barrel rested or barrel aged yeah. is just incredible. Well, apple juice and cider specifically, um, again, this is something I learned from my mentor, uh, Pete Mitchell, was that uh, it doesn't age like grape wine. Uh, it doesn't have the acidity levels that draw in the oak flavor. So aging in um, fresh oak or charred oak doesn't really impact uh, cider as much as you would think. Um, where really cider comes alive is when you use barrels. Um, Things like rum, whiskey, Merlot, port, port, Madeira, stuff like that would all right? produce some amazing flavors. But you're not getting the flavor of the wood as much as you're getting the flavor of the alcohol that was in the barrel. Right. So again, with the Irish Trumpy, what you taste when you drink it is that whiskey flavor. Uh, most people would say, "Yeah, I'm not really tasting a ton of oak." It's just that's just how cider is. It doesn't really do a lot in a barrel. I think all that's exciting. I look. This has been two years, I think, almost in the making <laughs> since we first met you. And this has been awesome. This really has. And it's – Dawn and I talk about – I mean, I, I, I hate to harp on it and sound like a broken record. But for our fermented adventure, sitting down and doing this for us, I mean, it's a selfish part of what we do. Um, because I got such a great education today. Um, I get such a great better understanding about what Original 13 is doing. And here's what I would say. If you haven't been to Original 13 – um, if you haven't had anything that, by the Sir Charles label, if you don't see it at your beer store or anything else, ask for it. But look, you guys are open. Yes. You're ready for people to stop by. Come on in. Absolutely. Yeah. Seven days a week. The weather is getting really nice. You got the outdoor space. And just come in and enjoy 6, 12. Enjoy the cocktails. Enjoy a game. Petra, you'll be here. Absolutely. Say hi to John. I'll be here. And really get a sense. Like, this has been a treat for us. It really has. And uh, hopefully we get to see more of what you're doing and enjoy what you're doing. But we're grateful for your time today. And thank you for sitting down with us for, for as long as you have. Because I know you're busy. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers.